You can take a Bible and find Jeremiah 1. I know that we've read those verses, but we're going to work our way through them and reference them this morning. Again, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the message. And so if you need to go pick up the elements, we've got some out in the foyer. We've got some out in this side hallway. Uh, You're welcome to go pick those up before the end of the sermon. We won't be passing those out, so you'll need to have those ready if you plan on participating in the Lord's Supper. Well, this is week one in a 20-week walk through the book of Jeremiah. 20 weeks is woefully inadequate for the, the book of Jeremiah because word for word, this is the longest book in the Bible. It comes in at 21,673 words, 1,364 verses, and 52 chapters. And I know a lot of you like to be prepared for Bible Jeopardy and you're wondering about what could be in the running here. And I like to show you spreadsheets when I can show you spreadsheets on a Sunday morning. So Jeremiah has the most words by over a thousand. The book of Psalms obviously has the most chapters at 150 and not surprisingly the most verses. You understand that this spreadsheet, this chart would look a little bit differently if we followed the Jewish custom of combining 1st and 2nd Samuel as just Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings as just Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles as just Chronicles. But we don't do that. We're English speakers, and our Bibles are divided in this way, so Jeremiah gets the trophy for the most words. Our aim is not just to count the words in this book. Our aim is to understand this book. And if you want to understand the book of Jeremiah, there's a couple of things that you've got to be able to wrap your mind around. Number one is you need to know the man, Jeremiah. Not necessarily the priest or the prophet or any of the other roles that he played, but you need to know Jeremiah, the man. And we're going to make a start at that this morning, talking about Jeremiah, the man. Secondly, if you want to understand the book of Jeremiah, you need to know the historical context of Jeremiah's ministry. Understanding the context, historical context of the Bible is always important when you're reading the scriptures. It's especially important in the book of Jeremiah because the book of Jeremiah is not strictly chronological, meaning he doesn't always move from one event to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next in order. Sometimes he kind of loops around. And so as we study this book, we always need to be able to find our bearings and understand what's going on in the historical sense of the context of this book. Jeremiah helps us in this introductory passage. He mentions three kings, and he dates himself by these three kings. He talks about Josiah, he talks about Jehoiakim, and he talks about Zedekiah. These were the twilight kings, the very last kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And to make sense of this, we just need to go back and have a little bit of Old Testament review as pertains the old covenant kingdom nation geopolitical state of Israel. So, I'll put these names on the screen. The first king of Israel was Saul. He was followed by David, who was followed by Solomon. Up through those three men, the nation of Israel was one unified whole. But after Solomon died, there was essentially a civil war, and the nation split into two. Jeroboam took the northern tribes, the northern tribes of Israel, and they called themselves Israel. Rehoboam took the southern tribes, and they called themselves Judah. The kingdom was divided. 
all of the kings who followed Jeroboam, including Jeroboam, were wicked. Every last one of them. They were all idolatrous. They were all uh, disobedient to the Lord God. And eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel, as founded by Jeroboam and all the kings who came after him, they were conquered by the nation of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire marched against Samaria, conquered the city, and took the people of the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. Jeremiah lived in a time when Assyria was no longer the world's superpower. Their empire was crumbling. The empire that conquered Jeroboam's northern kingdom, Assyria was just crumbling. Egypt, who had once been the world's superpower, was trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and flex a little bit, but it wasn't going to happen because there was a new world superpower on the horizon, and that new world superpower was Babylon. So when we get down to Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, we're talking about the three last kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you really dig into the text, yes, there are some other kings in those final years, but some of them weren't on the throne very long at all. And these are the three that Jeremiah uses to date himself, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. After Zedekiah, Babylon comes in, conquers the southern kingdom, takes the city of Jerusalem, burns it, flattens it, and sends the people into exile. That's the historical context of this story. It brings us to the big idea, which is very plain right in the opening verses, verse 1, 2, and 3. The big idea of this first section is that Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord. And you'll notice in your English translations, LORD is in all caps. That's the way that the translators indicate to you that this is not the Hebrew word Adonai, Lord. It's actually the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the name of God. The Jewish people would have pronounced it Adonai because they were afraid that they would misuse God's name. And that's reflected in the translation, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, you will find that phrase, the word of the Lord, 349 times. The word of the Lord, 349 times. 157 of them, almost half, are in the book of Jeremiah. He is not the only man by any stretch of the imagination who spoke the word of the Lord, but there is a special emphasis in this book making the point from the very beginning all the way through the end, this man is speaking the word of the Lord. I want you to think about names for just a minute. When you're born in the United States of America, you get two things on your first birthday. You get a name and a number. Your parents give you a name, and the United States government, if you're born in the United States, gives you a number, a social security number. Both of those things are important, aren't they? You need to know both of them. You, you need to have access to your number for various things. You need to know what your name is to make it through kindergarten. You got to know both of these things, your name and your number. Both of these things distinguish you from other people. They set you apart as a unique individual, a unique person. But you know as well as I do that a number is pretty impersonal. Like when you go to prison, they give you a number. You cease to have an identity and you just get a number. You are inmate number whatever. 
when I greet you in the hallways, you may feel like this is a prison. It's not. And I don't greet you as, well, good morning, 563-422. We're glad that you're here. We use names. Names are personal. Names remind us that we are people. We're individuals, right? We're not just defined as human beings by the roles that we play in life. Apart from those roles, we are actually individual people. We have a name. I play a number of roles in my life right now, and you can think about what this looks like in your life, but one of the roles that I play in my life right now is husband. I play the role of dad. I play the role of pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For some reason right now, I find myself playing the role of third and fourth grade girls volleyball coach. I know nothing about volleyball. I signed my kids up. They called and said, hey, we don't have any coaches. Will you coach? And I said, what are the requirements? And they said, can you pass a background check? And I said, I think I can. And they said, great, we'll sign you up. We've only got one loss. We're three and one. And I've convinced all the parents and all the kids that I know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. It's just a role that I'm playing right now. It's not my identity. Your identity is who you are as a person. And throughout this study in Jeremiah, we're going to talk about the roles that he played. We're going to do that this morning. There's a number of roles that Jeremiah played. Verse 1 mentions that he was of a priestly family. We could talk about Jeremiah as the priest. Verse 2 talks about Jeremiah speaking the word of the Lord. That's the role of a prophet. So we could talk about Jeremiah as a prophet. Josiah and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Jeremiah had relationships with all of those men. He was in some sense an advisor to the kings. They didn't always listen to him. In fact, they rarely listened to him, at least the latter two kings. But that was a role that he played, an advisor. Later, he will play the role of traitor. Whether he deserved that label or not, he played that role. He plays the role of prisoner. And at the end of his life, he plays the role of refugee. He's literally kidnapped by his kinsmen and taken into a foreign country away from his home. He played all of these roles in life. But before we say anything about Jeremiah in these roles, we just need to remember that Jeremiah was a man. He was a person. So I want you to just think first with me about Jeremiah. Not Jeremiah, any of those other things, just Jeremiah. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, we know more about Jeremiah than any other prophet. We know more about his birth and his life and his background and his struggles and his thought process and all the rest. Many of the prophets, we read about them and they almost just seem sort of uh, like a machine, like God gives them a message and they say it and we don't know how they felt about it or uh, how it went. We know a lot about Jeremiah. One thing we don't know is what his name means. There's two leading suggestions. One group of scholars say the name Jeremiah means the Lord, Yahweh, exalts or he lifts up. Another group of scholars says, no, Jeremiah means the Lord, Yahweh, hurls or throws. The, the scholars are divided. We have a man in our church. He was in the first service. He's headed to Southwestern Seminary in the fall. He's already signed up for Hebrew. I told him, we expect you to come back in six months with the answer. What does Jeremiah mean? It either means the Lord exalts or the Lord throws. Either way, this is a man whose identity is bound up in the Lord. 
It's a relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. We know a few things more, at least from this introductory passage. We know that he is the son of Hilkiah from Anathoth in Benjamin. The son of Hilkiah from Anathoth in Benjamin. Hilkiah is an interesting name. If you've studied the Old Testament, that name might ring a bell to you. If it rings a bell, it's because there's a story about a king named Josiah, who was a good king, who started to lead a revival in Judah. As that revival began to grow, a priest named Hilkiah went into the temple and found a copy of a book that had been forgotten. It was the Old Testament. It was the Torah. It was the law of God. And he brought that book out to King Josiah, and that book helped spark a revival in Judah. It was the very end of the nation's history, and the Lord sent one last revival through Josiah, through this priest named Hilkiah, in this book that he found. And as I was reading this week, I thought, how amazing is that the same Hilkiah? And then I opened my commentaries. Every commentator says it's not the same guy. Different Hilkiah. I don't know. The timeline matches perfectly. Same name, both a priest, both lived during the days of Josiah. Most of the commentators seem to think that the priests in Anathoth would not have been as active in Jerusalem and able to find this book. So I'll leave you with that. You can wrestle with it as you choose. Anathoth was an interesting city. It was a city that Joshua gave to the Levites all the way back during the conquest. You remember Joshua led the people in. They chopped up the land. You go here, you go here, you go here. And the Levites didn't get a specific piece of land. They just got cities all the way through so that they would be sprinkled throughout the nation. Anathoth was one of the cities they got. It was just a few miles northeast of Jerusalem. In fact, from Anathoth, you can look and see the gates and the walls of Jerusalem even to this day. That's where Jeremiah was from. We also know that he never married. That was God's decision, not Jeremiah's decision. We'll talk about that later as we work through the book. We know that he worked closely with a man named Baruch. Baruch was a scribe. He essentially wrote down Jeremiah's sermons and thoughts, and he was just sort of the writer for Jeremiah. At one point, the initial book of Jeremiah was literally burned intentionally in a fire, and the Lord just said to Jeremiah and Baruch, it's okay, just write another one. They can burn it, we'll write another one. It's no big deal. So he wrote these words twice. Jeremiah lived, we know, approximately 60 years. Don't know for certain, but 60 years is about right, and he died in Egypt. He began preaching as a teenager. He lived up through about 60 years of age, and at the end of his life, he was kidnapped by his kinsmen, taken to Egypt. It's not what he wanted to do. We'll get to that part of the story later as well. So that's Jeremiah the man. Now let's talk about Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah spent 40 years speaking for God to the people. Roughly 40 years of his life speaking for God to the people. That was the job of the prophet in the Old Testament. Listen to God, take his word, and communicate it to God's people. You see it in the opening verses of this book. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah. These are his words. These are not words that just 
boomed out of heaven like the sound of thunder. These are words that came from a man named Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, who grew up in Anathoth. These are his words. Look at verse 2. To whom the word of the Lord came. Whose words do we read in this book? Well, there's two possible answers. You could say these are Jeremiah's words. That would be true. You could also say these are God's words, and that would be true. It's the exact same dynamic in play with the book that most of you are holding in your hands this morning. We've been talking on Wednesday nights about the Bible. Right now we're talking about how you interpret the Bible. We started off talking about one really, really important doctrine back in January in our Wednesday night series, the inspiration of the Bible. What we said back in that lesson months ago is that this book, the Holy Bible, the Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, these 66 books, this collection, it's written by men like Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Matthew, Luke, Paul, John. All of these men wrote these books. And yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit of God wrote this book. Both of those things are true. That's what we mean when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible. Human beings wrote these books, but Paul explains it to Timothy like this. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is literally spirited out from God. These are his words. They're not just Paul's words. They're God's words. Peter describes it like this just a few pages later. He says, know this first of all. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. The men spoke. It wasn't just God booming from heaven. The men were speaking, but it wasn't just them speaking. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You say, who wrote this book? Well, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Matthew, Luke, John, Paul. Yes, all true, all true. But these words are God's words. It presents us with a strange dilemma when you think about Jeremiah and you think about your Bible. Most people, even now in 2021, even in the secular West, most people still believe in a higher power of some kind, a divine being of some kind. I understand that secularism and atheism are statistically growing year after year, but the majority of people where we live still believe that there is a God of some kind out there. And this is not statistical, I don't have a survey, this is just anecdotal. I think most of us today wish, we just wish that God, whoever he is, wherever he is, whatever he's doing, we just wish that he would tell us something. God, would you just speak to me? I bet you've had a situation in the last year over COVID where you've thought that. God, I don't know what to think about all this. I don't know how to feel about all this. I don't know what's going on. God, I don't know, would you just say something to me? Would you just talk to me? And we have this mindset that if he would just talk, we would listen. He has. And rarely do we. It was true 
in Jeremiah's day just like it's true today. It was Jeremiah speaking, but it was God speaking through him. He was speaking the word of the Lord, and very few people listened. One last note about Jeremiah the prophet. His ministry coincided with one good king and two wicked kings. Josiah was the good king. Josiah led a great revival in Israel, maybe the greatest revival in all of Israel. It was very important at the end of their national history as they were about to be swept into exile that they have a firm grasp, at least some of them have a firm grasp on the truth about the one true God because they were about to get uprooted and sent far, far, far from home. And Josiah led this one last revival. And Hilkiah, whoever he was, was involved in finding this book and the law of God played a role. But the revival was short-lived because Josiah was followed by Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Jehoiakim tried to be a strong man, a tyrant, and Zedekiah was basically a puppet for whatever the nations wanted him to do, the other powerful nations around them. They were both godless, wicked, immoral kings. They were men, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, who set themselves in direct opposition to the word of God. They literally at one point took the book of Jeremiah, the one and only original copy of Jeremiah, and burned it page by page in a fire as they read it. Read me a page, cut it off, throw it in the fire. Read me a page, cut it off, throw it in the fire. There's a reminder in this story, these wicked kings opposing God's word, there's a reminder that God's word is going to win in the end. You know how we know that? It's because we're reading the book of Jeremiah this morning. I mean, these men literally set themselves to destroy the book, and God simply said, that's okay, we'll write another book. If they destroy that one, we'll write a third one. If they destroy that one, we'll write a fourth one. There is no government, there is no president, there is no king, there is no congress, there is no court, there is no political party, there is no ideology, there is no professor on any university campus, there is no secular movement on earth that will destroy the word of God, period. That's it. Isaiah says as much in Isaiah 40, and this is quoted in the New Testament. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Listen, when Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord, almost no one listened. Almost no one. Doesn't matter. The word of God is not going anywhere. People don't have to listen to it. People don't have to like it. People don't have to applaud it. None of those things happened in Jeremiah's day. You know as well as I know that those things rarely happen today. God's word will stand. Men and their kingdoms and their governments are like grass and they are here today and they are gone tomorrow and the word of God will stand forever. Jeremiah the prophet. Now, let's talk about Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 in our passage ends with the idea that Jerusalem will go into captivity. This is Jeremiah the author, writing probably through Baruch, telling you the end of the story right at the very beginning. 
He's telling you in verse three, this is how my story ends. This is what happens to Judah. This is what happens to me, Jeremiah the man. We are going into captivity. And if you fast forward to the end of the book, Jeremiah 52, 27, you will read, Judah was taken into exile out of its land. It happened just like he said it would happen. This is the Garden of Eden all over again. In Eden, God creates a people. He puts them in a special land just for them. He has a relationship with them and he lives with them in that land. He gives them laws to live by in that land. And in Eden, God's people decided, we don't like your laws and we will not obey you. And God said in response, well, then you don't get to stay in the land. That's Jeremiah. God brought these people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into a good land. He said, you're going to build a tabernacle so that I can dwell with you and be with you. And I'm going to give you laws to live by in this land. And God's people over the years, over the decades, over the centuries said, we don't like your laws. And we don't like you giving us these laws. We want to worship other gods. And God said, that's fine, but you'll have to leave the land. And he sent them into exile. That's what Jeremiah is talking about in these opening verse and closing verse. Here's some of the things Jeremiah faced. Jeremiah experienced misunderstanding, opposition, grief, and ultimately exile. Misunderstanding, opposition, grief, and exile. Let's take those one at a time. Misunderstanding. At one point, the Lord sends Jeremiah to the people. Babylon is about to conquer Jerusalem. He sends Jeremiah, and the message from the Lord through Jeremiah is, if you will surrender, put your sword down and wave the white flag, if you will give up, Babylon will take your nation and your sovereignty, but you will get to stay and you'll live if you just surrender. And the people heard Jeremiah say that, and they looked at him and they said, you are a traitor. They wouldn't have used the phrase Benedict Arnold, but that's the idea. You just want to give up. Are you really a Babylonian in disguise? Whose side are you on, Jeremiah? Why would you tell us to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar? They misunderstood him. He was offering them a path of life, and all they called him was a traitor. Today, when you take your stand on God's word and you make it publicly known, you will be misunderstood. People will look at you because you stand on the word of God and they will say you're a bigot, you're narrow-minded, you're hateful, you're judgmental, all the way down the list. And you'll say, but I'm none of those things. And I'll say, well, it's not the first time that God's people have been misunderstood. It happened a long, long time ago with a man named Jeremiah. He faced opposition. He faced opposition from his friends. He faced opposition from his own family. He faced opposition from other prophets. There were times where Jeremiah would stand up in Jerusalem and he would deliver a sermon. And as soon as he said amen and sat down, five other prophets would stand up and say the exact opposite. They would stand up and say, Jeremiah is a liar, he's a traitor, and they opposed him every step of the way. They beat him. They mocked him. They threw him in prison and left him to die. 
he faced opposition. Do I have to tell you in the 21st century in the West that it is becoming more and more and more likely that if you take your stand on the word of God, you will face opposition from the world. It will not be the first time that God's people have faced opposition for standing on God's word. Jeremiah experienced grief. Grief. He looked around at his nation, the same nation that had a revival under Josiah, that then literally dove into the deep end of idolatry under Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. He looked around and all he could see was moral and spiritual rot. Sound familiar? That's all he could see. It did not make him angry first. It made him weep first. We don't call Jeremiah the angry prophet. We call him the weeping prophet. He looked at all of these people all around him, refusing to listen to the truth, plunging into rotten decay, and he wept. Francis Schaeffer is a well-known Christian. He died some years ago. He lived in the 20th century in the 1900s. He says this, Jeremiah provides us with an extended study of an era like our own where men have turned away from God and society has become post-Christian. And his point when he makes this statement is when you look around and all you see is moral and spiritual rot, don't be too quick to be angry if you're not weeping. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. We look around at these things. We weep. Lastly, he faced exile. Verse 3, they'll go to captivity. Chapter 52, verse 27, Judah was taken into exile. That was the end of Jeremiah's life and ministry. It's a happy ending, isn't it? A life of misunderstanding, opposition, grief, and exile. If you travel to the Vatican, some of you have you can visit a place called the Sistine Chapel. It was built in the late 1400s inside the Vatican compound. In the early 1500s, an artist named Michelangelo was commissioned to paint the inside of the Sistine Chapel. And if you're a tourist, and I suppose it's not COVID season, you can go in and you can look around and you can see all of these famous paintings. I want to show you Michelangelo's painting of Jeremiah. You can see it if you visit the Sistine Chapel. It's an interesting painting. We just read in chapter 1 that Jeremiah was called to be a prophet when he was a youth. But that man is no youth. We have some pretty rugged looking teenagers in our church, but that's an old man. It's an old man. So the artist is telling you this is not Jeremiah fresh out of seminary. This is Jeremiah at the end of his life. You look at that painting and you see a man who is hunched. It's almost like there's something on his shoulders just pressing down, weighing down, almost like a life of calling out sin and offering hope only to be ignored has just completely broken him down and weighs him down. You'll notice in the painting that you can't see his eyes. He's just looking down at the ground. He's not looking up, he's just looking down at the ground almost as if Michelangelo is saying, Jeremiah has seen enough. He doesn't need to see anymore. And you'll notice that this man 
whose book begins with the words of Jeremiah, this man who received the word of the Lord 157 times in this painting has his hand over his mouth. Almost as if to say there is not anything left to be said. There is nothing I can say that will change these people's minds. You look at that painting. It is an accurate summary of Jeremiah at the end of his ministry. Old, hunched over, staring into the ground, hand over his mouth. You look at that painting and you could almost say, Jeremiah looks like a man of sorrow. Man of sorrow. It brings me to one last point. Jeremiah's life and his ministry, I believe, point us to Jesus, the incarnate word of God, and the true man of sorrows. I just want you to think about the parallels here between Jeremiah and Jesus. 157 times out of 349 in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. He is speaking the word of the Lord. What do we read in John chapter 1, verse 1? I know you thought we were done with John. You're never done with John. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. 157 times the word of the Lord came to him. John 1.1, the word of God came to the earth and he became a man. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. It makes you think of Isaiah 53, prophecy about the suffering servant, about Jesus. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jeremiah, old, hunched over, eyes on the ground, hand over his mouth, weeping over the decay and the the rot all around him. Makes you think of Jesus, the man of sorrows who was rejected and acquainted with grief, weeping over Jerusalem because Jerusalem refused to welcome and recognize her Messiah. It's no wonder that when Jesus was preaching and people were trying to figure out Jesus, some people thought Jesus was Jeremiah. You may have missed that. Look what we read in Matthew 16. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. There were people who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back from the dead, head put back on his shoulders, come back to get vengeance on Herod. That was one answer. John with his head reattached. Some people said, Elijah. You remember Elijah. He was fearless and he was bold and he called out the prophets of Baal and he called down fire from heaven and they said, man, Jesus preaches like that guy. Maybe it's Elijah. And then some people actually said, this is not a long list. Some people said maybe it's Jeremiah. Why would they say that? Well, Jeremiah was a man that the word of the Lord came to over and over and over and over again. And people listened to Jesus and they recognized he speaks with authority. He speaks the word of God. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and suffering. The parallels are hard to miss. We'll put the picture of Jeremiah up one more time. 
He's old. He's hunched. He's staring at the floor. His hand is over his mouth. He's a man of sorrows. That's the end of his life. Makes you think of Jesus. Beaten. Scourged. Crown of thorns. Body broken on the tree. Crucified. Dead. Stabbed in the side. Wrapped up. Thrown in a hole in the ground. He's a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. The parallels are hard to miss, but there is one big difference. This is the end for Jeremiah. He goes into exile. They take him to Egypt. Tradition says he is stoned to death, and that's it. Jesus, beaten, bloodied, crucified, crown of thorns, spear in the side, wrapped up, thrown in a a hole in the ground, and three days later, walks out alive. Jeremiah dies in defeat and apparent failure. Jesus dies in apparent defeat and failure, but then he rises from the dead three days later in victory over sin and death. He not only rises to new life, but he ascends to heaven, to the throne of the cosmos. And I assure you, he is not hunched over in defeat as he sits on the throne of the universe. He is sitting boldly in confidence, awaiting the day that he comes back for his people. And when he comes back for his people, when he comes back for his church, it will not be as a man of sorrows. The Bible says it will be as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, riding a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God coming out of his mouth. He will return in victory. Jeremiah points us forward in an incomplete way to Jesus, the man of sorrows, but the man of sorrows who came out of death on the other side alive and victorious. As Christian people, we gather together each week to remember and to celebrate the truth about Jesus, that the word of God became flesh, that he dwelt among us, that the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, laid down his life for ours on the cross, that three days later he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he promised to come back for his people. One of the ways we remember that, one of the ways we celebrate that is by taking the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that this morning. If you have your elements for the Lord's Supper, I'll ask you to get those ready. This morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you have obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate with us. I'm going to read a few verses this morning. I'll ask you first to take the bread. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. Scripture says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I ask you to take the cup. And again, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, this time verse 25 and 26. Scripture says this, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, 
saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.